people. This 40-day time, the focus is actually exactly where Leroy and Emery have already taken us. The focus in the 40 days, the focus, I'm not saying the, the entire thing, but the focus is on where am I with God? Where am I with others in the body? That's where the focus is. It's alignment. We're aligning with God and aligning with each other. That's the primary focus. We're not spending our time saying, well, if the church would just do this, or if they would get their act together and do this. What about my heart? It's the individuality Emory just prayed about. That's what I hope is going on in this 40 days. That's what we're shooting for is the alignment. Now, what we're saying is as you're focusing on alignment, God is not a linear God. If you haven't figured it out by now, God doesn't do one, two, three, four in order every time. He's like the wind, right? The Spirit of God, John 3. You can't even predict where he's going. So in the midst of focusing on alignment, God may say something to you about your assignment individually or our assignment collectively. Be sensitive to that. So that we're not focusing on assignment right now, okay? But what we are doing is we're saying be open that in the midst of focusing on alignment, he may say something to you about assignment individually or together. So hopefully that's, that's clear. Hopefully that's clear. Wanted to make that, uh, make sure that that was out there. Um, the other thing is the Wednesday night prayer times. We have been gathering together now two Wednesdays in a row, and we've been seeking to hear God together. Uh, I shared with you last Sunday what we felt we heard at the first Wednesday. Let me talk about this past Wednesday. A couple things that we felt were kind of the summary things. Chuck, bring those up, please. Uh, number one was don't focus on finding his mission for us. Rest in him and let him change our hearts, which is what I just said, basically. The focus right now is our own hearts. As he works here, he'll, then, he'll give us our assignment, but our focus is right here. Another thing that, I, that we heard together was, when he does speak to us about mission, don't limit what he calls you to based on your strengths only. He may call you to something that you're not comfortable with, or you don't even feel gifted to do. Be open to that. And then a third thing, and I'd say this is probably the strongest thing, is that this is very much a season of preparation. It's like he's getting the ground ready for something that he's going to do, something we don't know exactly what he has in mind. But it is a preparation going on. And the question is, am I, am I engaging with that? Am I allowing God to prepare my heart for whatever he wants to do? So, so this Wednesday, we're going to continue with our corporate hearing. I did think it might be helpful for us to hear from a friend of ours, Bob Japinga. He's one of my good, good friends, and he's very gifted. He actually wrote a book on how do you hear God together as a group. He's written a book on that, and he guides groups in that. And he's available this Wednesday, so he's going to lead our time Wednesday. I think it's going to be very educational. I think you're going to learn a lot about what does it look like to discern God's will together. So if you can be here Wednesday, 6.30, love to have you join us. All right, so with that said, let me pray for 40 days and for the message, if you bow your heads with me. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son and that your son did not come half-heartedly he came fully committed all in and Lord as your body on this planet you've called us to take up our cross deny ourselves and follow you 
And Lord, it's not a halfway call. It's all or nothing. Would you help each one of us individually? Not worry about the person next to us or the person in front of us or behind us, but would you help each one of us this morning hear, really hear what you're saying to our hearts? Help us to hear, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, talking about hearing, one of the downsides of growing older, and those of you my age and older can attest to this, is you start having trouble with hearing. You can't hear as good as you used to hear, right? Anybody? I, well, you don't have to raise your hand, okay? You know, you know who you are. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. My wife will often tell me, you know, she'll be like, you don't have to talk so loud all the time. We'll be in the middle of a restaurant, and she'll like, everyone can hear you. I'm like, no, they can't. And she's like, I can hear you, right? And so it can be hard. And I don't know about you, but like when you're in a crowd and there's multiple voices or there's like music in the background and there's, it's like I have such a hard time distinguishing the voices and, and hearing the person that's trying to talk to me. I really struggle at it. I mean, I have to really concentrate on that person and block out all the other stuff. It's really hard. It's a challenge over a sporting event or something like that. I mean, you just forget it, right? Or some big public event. I mean, I just do what the penguin said, smile and wave, just smile and wave, right? <laughs> and hopefully you're agreeing with something good, right? Listening can be a challenge. Now, sometimes the problem with the listening is the speaker. The speaker is just not clear and it's all garbled and you can't quite make it out or it's too soft. Sometimes the problem with the hearing is the hearer. You know, they're just not tuned in correctly. Maybe they're, they're struggling like I am with hearing. But a lot of times the problem is neither one of those. A lot of times when there's a communication issue, it's something deeper than that. A lot of times it's the heart of the listener. Because you can have a good communicator with a clear message, speaking to someone with good ears, but if their heart is not open to hearing what's being said, they're not going to hear a word. We are in a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus More Than Enough because that's exactly what he is. And today's message in Mark chapter 4, as Leroy said, parable of sower, I've entitled it, Can You Hear Me Now? Right? Like the Verizon guy. Can you hear me now? Because Jesus has been speaking very clearly up until now about the kingdom, and yet what are we finding? Some are hearing and some aren't. Now last week, I was in the end of Mark chapter 3. I don't know if you were here or not, but it's important if you weren't here that you hear what I'm about to say, because it sets up the parable of the sower. The end of chapter 3, Jesus has two different groups that reject him. Those of you who were here, who were they? The religious leaders and, the and his own family. People you think would embrace the Messiah are not hearing him. Now one is not hearing him at all. They say he's of Satan and they're as hard as a rock. And Jesus says they've actually gone too far. They've committed an eternal sin. 
his family, not having gone that far, but they're not hearing him either, are they? They're misunderstanding Jesus. It's like he's garbled to them. You're not quite making it. They're not getting him. And yet there's this whole group of people at the end of chapter 3 who are surrounding him, who Jesus says, these are my brothers, sisters, and mothers. So some are hearing him, and some are not, even though Jesus is a great communicator. He got an A in preaching, right? And the word is good. Why are some getting it and some aren't? That's the question that Jesus answers as we go into Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and he sat in and out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching he said, listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they didn't bear grain. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, I'm going to do the next 10 verses later today. Let's just focus on the parable before I go any further on the interpretation. So we start off here as Jesus begins to teach, it says, by the lake. He had been in a home. Now he leaves the home and he goes by a lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is a natural amphitheater. This is a picture of just one of the shores in the Sea of Galilee. And it's a little difficult to tell. But the, it's a natural amphitheater. And matter of fact, scientists have gone to the, uh, the Sea of Galilee to do tests to see if someone is speaking in the lake, how many could hear. And they, they have shown, because of the, 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 the shape of the Sea of Galilee, thousands can hear one person speaking down below with no amplification at all. And so Jesus is speaking. And what we see here in, in chapter 1 is it says that the crowd around him was so large, he got into a boat and sat in it, you know, out on the lake, away from the shore. The word here in the Greek for large is the superlative, elative, which means huge. This is a massive crowd. I, we don't have a number, but it's really big. It's a lot of people who are there. They're there on the seashore. They're, they're sitting on, camped up on the embankment of the, of the Sea of Galilee. They're all listening to him as he sits there. And he begins to teach them. Now, he's been teaching in the first three chapters. But chapter, verse 2 says he starts teaching in a new way. He taught them many things by parables. By parables. He shifts his teaching at this point. From clear, just here's the kingdom of God, talking straight to everybody. And now he's, he's going to tell parables. So first of all, what is a parable? Why is he teaching in parables? So first of all, the word parable, parabole, is just to, is two words combined, beside and to throw. So you take something familiar and you throw it beside something unfamiliar in order to explain how this thing works. The question is, how much identification is there between the two things? The thing you're aware of and the thing you're not aware of, how much identification is there when you're trying to interpret how this tells me what this means? In the early church, they allegorized everything. 
they would take a parable of Jesus like the parable of the sower, and every single detail would mean something significant, like Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that book. That's an allegory. Every detail means something. But as church history has moved on, especially from the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther onward, that's changed. And by the 20th century, a guy named Juliker came forward and kind of, kind of really set the stage for what is now the way we interpret parables, which is that it tells one main point. It's got one teaching point. Now, there could be side points too, but generally speaking, don't stress the details. It's meant to tell one major thing. So that's what we're going for this morning. With that said, here's a few of the things about parables. Mark Strauss just talks about that it's stories from everyday life that illustrates, illustrates spiritual truths. So instead of describing the spiritual truth, Jesus will just tell a story, and then it's up to the listener to figure out how they connect to one another. But Kenneth Bailey says it's even more than that. He says a parable is not only an illustration, it's a mode of theological speech used to evoke a response. The point of the parable is not to tell a cute little story. The point of the parable is to get us to change. The parable is a call to respond. And that's what true listening really does. True listening changes the way it does things. And that's the very first thing Jesus says. Verse 3, he says, Listen, before he even tells the parable, look, he says, listen. The word there, akuo, very interesting. Up until now, that word's been used four times in the first three chapters. Starting here, it's going to be used 40 more times the rest of the book. It will be a major theme for the rest of the book. And this is the question, and I would submit to us, Wintonberry, it's not just a question for the people in the first century this is a question for Wintonberry Church 2019. Are we listening? Are we listening? Are we hearing? How seriously are you taking this? We believe God called us into 40 days of prayer and fasting. Are you hearing? Am I hearing? Are we taking God's call seriously? Remember, this is a Jewish people that Jesus is saying to this crowd, listen, hear. Does that, would that sound familiar to the ears of a Jew? Hear. What do they pray three times a day? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with half your heart, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, three times a day. They're really good at saying it. But true hearing does not just repeat what it hears. True hearing does what? It does it. We've been called to pray and fast. Are you praying and fasting? Are we praying and fasting? Are we hearing? Am I hearing? And it's not, well, I'm hearing, but I'm not sure they're hearing. No, no, no. If you've had any thought like that, you are the hard ground. 
Are you hearing? Am I hearing? Listen. Then he tells a very familiar scene in ancient Israel. One that every single person on that hillside would be very familiar with because most of them are farmers. See, Jesus uses an illustration they can all connect to. Today, he would maybe talk about corporate America or something, I don't know, or suburban living for a congregation like ours. He talks about farming, and, and I, I don't need to go into a lot of detail here. The story stands for itself. He just describes the way they would sow in the ancient world. They, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no, I said this. Okay, so he, they just go around, and they would sow by hand, or sometimes they would have a bag with a hole in the bottom, and it would be uh, drawn along by a cart, if the person had trouble with their arms. Either way, it was very liberal sowing of the seed. The seed would be sown everywhere, on plowed ground, unplowed ground. It doesn't matter. It would be put in all sorts of places. And as it was put out there, this seed, it came out with different results, right? How many different results? You tell me. There's four, right? So the one on the hard ground, right? Can't break through that. So the birds just eat it up, right? It's, this is simple teaching. It's not a hard example, right? Then you've got the rocky ground. It's thin, so it, you know, it goes down. It, it takes root quickly and grows up quickly, but it's got no roots, so bing, it's scorched. And then there's the thorny ground. Maybe you didn't see the thorns when the seeds were thorn, but they were in there underneath the, the soil. And then when it got, eventually when it grew up, the thorns grew up with it and then just choked it all out. But then there's the seed that fell on the good soil, right? Now, when you look at Hebrew writing, whether it's poetry, Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament, or, or Jewish teaching in the first century, you always look for the outlier. Always. You cancel out all the things that are the same, and you always look for the outlier. Do this when you're reading the Psalms. Look at Genesis chapter 1. We get all caught up in how God created the universe. That's not what Genesis 1 is. It's not a scientific manual. You've got all these things, day one and day four match, two and five match, three and six match. The sphere and the ruler, the sphere and the ruler, the sphere and the ruler, they all match. And then there's an outlier, day seven, which is what? Rest, which is what the whole Bible's about. Entering into his shalom. That's the focus of Genesis 1, that the point of everything is shalom with God. Prodigal story, Genesis 15. Three Parables in a row about lost things found in great joy, right? Coin, sheep, and a son. But then there's an outlier. What's the outlier? Come on, you guys know the Bible. The older son. He doesn't fit the story. He's the focus of Luke 15. We have three soils producing exactly the same, which is nothing. So what's the focus of this parable? The outlier, the good ground. And what does the good ground produce? The typical yield in Israel was somewhere between five, five-fold was a good return, 15-fold was a great return. 30 is double a great return. 60 and 100 is amazing. It's not miraculous. We know of 100-fold, you know, harvests in the ancient world. It's not that it's miraculous, the point is, it is super fruitful. And that leaves us, have you ever thought about this with this parable? There's only two options. We get caught up in the four soils. I think the focus is not, a, I think it's, you're either bearing 
tons of fruit or nothing. There's no half fruitfulness. Back to where Leroy had us. Lukewarmness produces no fruit. So that becomes the question. What is Jesus trying to say with this parable? Remember, we're trying to ask the question, why are some people getting it? And why aren't other people getting it? And what he's saying is, it's the, it's the, it's the soil that the seed is put in. There's nothing wrong with the seed, right? Because when it's put in good soil, what does it do? Boom! The seed's good. The sower, does he know what he's doing? Well, obviously he does, because look at the abundance in the good soil. There's no problem with the sower. The issue is what kind of soil you're dealing with. And that becomes our first point this morning. So this first point is that reception is directly related to the state of the receiver. Whether you are hearing, whether you are, resp- whether you are going to hear in a way that's going to bring fruit is directly related to the state of the receiver. If the receiver has a heart willing to receive it, it will receive it, and it will receive it in abundance. But if their heart is not in a state of receiving, for whatever reason, there will be no receiving and no fruit. So the question is, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? And the crowd is saying, not really. I mean, up and through chapter 3, you were preaching very clearly. Go back in the first three chapters, and his message was very clear. Kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe, or whatever else he was teaching. It was all clear. Now, after all of this really good theological teaching, he shows up, and everyone's excited. They got their notepads out. Jesus is coming. He's a great speaker. I can't wait to hear him. This is awesome. You know, and then, and then instead of telling some great theological insight, he tells a story. He doesn't even mention God. He doesn't mention kingdom, which is what he's been obsessed with, frankly. He doesn't talk, he just tells a story. And it's like, hello? I mean, you ever talk to somebody and all of a sudden they randomly change the subject to something totally unrelated? You're like, hello? I can't hear you right now. We need a translator. What, what does this story mean? He doesn't explain it. Well, his disciples are also thinking we need a translator. So that's what they say in verse 10. When he was alone. Oh, yeah, so verse 9, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That's a command, by the way. It's the uh, present active imperative. This is your responsibility. We are the one to actively hear. It's our responsibility. Verse 10, when he was alone. The 12 and the others around him. So those are the folks that were surrounding him in the house last week. Chapter 3. They asked him about the parables. So there were other parables. He was telling all kinds of stories. We just got the one here. Next week we'll look at a couple more. Tell us about these parables. We're, we're trying to understand what in the world you're trying to say. And it's not quite landing. It's, uh, we're not sure what you're saying. We have a reception problem. Remember the old bunny ears on the TV, right? I couldn't get channel 30 in. Those, those UHF channels were really hard to get in back in the day. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I wanted to get channel 30 and I couldn't get it. You know, 3 and 8 on VHF weren't so bad. Reception issues, reception issues. It reminds me when I was in Jerusalem two years ago, um, believe it or not, 
I, had, I was asked to preach at a Filipino church in Jerusalem. There's a lot of Filipinos in Jerusalem. They, they bring them in to serve. They're, they're, they're all servants. They're mostly young women, frankly. And they're brought in to serve wealthy Jewish homes. It's very interesting. I'm not quite sure how that developed, but it, it's, it's huge. Thousands and thousands of Filipino young ladies. So they've got this church of Filipinos. They barely speak English. So I had to speak through a Philip, of someone who translated everything I said into Philippine. And it was, it's really weird to do that, by the way. I hate it. It's like you can't get in a rhythm at all. But anyways, but I was speaking gospel truth, good seed to these people as best as I know how. And they would have looked at me with a blank stare if it wasn't for the translator, right? Were they hearing what I was saying? Audibly, yes, but they weren't understanding it, were they? I showed you guys this a couple years ago. I don't know, I doubt anyone remembers it. Anyone read Arabic? Anyone knows what that says? Does anyone read Arabic here? That should move you. That is Arabic script that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the message of salvation. But it's being given to you in a manner that you can't understand. Even though it's a glorious message with great power, it has no power if you don't understand it. That's what's going on with these parables. The disciples are like, it's like gibberish, Jesus. What did it mean? Well, you just told the story. You didn't even tell us why you told the story. We know why, because we're reading through the God. But they're like, why did you tell the story? What does it mean? So Jesus tells them, verse 11. And this is, this is hard stuff here. I hope you're hearing me. But this is hard stuff here. Verse 11. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Why? So that. Well, there's lots of debate about what that so, so that means in the Greek. But most would agree whether they like it or not. It's most likely purpose. Why is he speaking in parables? Why aren't the secret of kingdom being given to everybody? Why is the hearing aid of the secret of the kingdom only be given to some and not to all? So that, purpose. They may be ever seeing but never perceiving that they may be ever hearing but never understanding. Why? Because otherwise, they might just turn and be forgiven. Now, hold on a second. Do you worship the same Jesus I do? Because the Jesus I worship, I thought, wants everyone to be saved. Everyone to be forgiven. But what does this verse seem to say? I'm going to speak to them in a way like that because if I spoke clearly, they might just turn and be forgiven. Like that's a bad thing. Why wouldn't I want people to turn and be forgiven? What is going on here? Well, he is quoting, as you'll see down in your notes at the bottom of your page, from Isaiah chapter 6. Anyone remember what that chapter is about? That's a very famous chapter in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year... That King Uzziah died, what did Isaiah see? 
I saw the Lord. Oh my. I saw the Lord. High and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And what was Isaiah's response to seeing God? Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips! He falls on his face, scared to death. He's about to be obliterated in the presence of holiness. But God sends a seraph to touch his lips with a holy coal that purifies and cleanses him in the presence of God. And then he says, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, send me. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And then we get this quote. I'm going to send you to Israel, Isaiah. You're going to go to my people, the people I've given straight word to, the people I've given the law to, the people I've revealed myself right in their face to. But when you go, guess what they're going to be? Hard-hearted, stiff-necked. Just read Isaiah 6. He says, they're not going to listen to you, Isaiah. And because of that, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to take my people who I love, who I've poured out blessing upon, who I intended nothing but good to, but who have done nothing but disobey me. I'm going to take them away in discipline to a place called Babylon. But then at the very end of the chapter, he says, but I'm going to leave a stump in the land. And in the middle of all of this judgment from a holy God, righteously judging an unholy people, this gracious God puts an olive leaf of hope in the midst of all that. That's the kind of God we serve. He upholds his holiness, but oh, how he extends grace to those who will listen and humble themselves and repent and turn. But what you need to understand is that this is indeed what he's saying is, listen, these people like Israel before them, they, I, have, I have plainly put forth the gospel. They are rejecting it. They're on the outside. And from now on, they're not going to get the, 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 the jewels of the kingdom of God because they've rejected them. I'm going to give them what they've wanted, essentially. And it's a form of judgment, yet it's also a form of grace because by not giving them the full thing, they're not fully accountable. And there's grace in that. But more than anything, this, in Isaiah 6, this is a judgment statement on, on the ones who are turning their backs on the living God and his living word. And so that's our second point this morning. Our second point is that reception issues are part of God's judgment on the heart-hearted. One of the reasons they're going to have trouble hearing is that is God's very judgment on them for their rejection of him. Theologian Craig Blomberg, uh, I know some of you are writing that, so hold off uh, Chuck for a minute. This is a very, when you read the commentaries, they're all over the place. We, people struggle with this whole passage here. And, um, but there's no mistaking that there's judgment here. God is holy, guys. God is holy. Jesus suffered on that cross because of the holiness of God on our behalf. We cannot take God lightly. Craig Blomberg has said this, and now I can go ahead and show it. He said, the hidden aspect of the parable message, the fact that it's a secret, the Greek word is mysterion. It's something that you can't understand unless God reveals it to you. The hidden aspect of the message 
It's thus both a cause of their unwillingness to follow because they don't understand, but it's also a response to their unwillingness to follow. Because you're not willing to follow, I'm no longer going to give you clear teaching. Kind of like Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but it was only after Pharaoh hardened his own heart with God showing himself right in front of his face. And how many of us, we've got something they never had. The word of God itself telling us, love your enemies, forgive those who hurt you, be gentle and kind, love me, do not love the world. We've had it right in our face. And if we keep walking in lukewarmness, God is fourth priority. We expect God to show himself to us? No. And yet, again, what do we see in the Old Testament? Every time God pours forth his judgment, there's always, 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 yet my heart is stirred within me. Yet my heart is stirred within me for my people. And I will be faithful to them even when they're unfaithful to me. You know, no commentator brought this point out. But when I was studying it, I saw it. And I just said, Lord, if, if I'm wrong here, so this is an opinion. But boy, I think it's a good point. And I just feel like God showed this to me. It, you almost feel hopeless at the end of this, of what Jesus is saying here. But wait a minute. Remember the context. And all of a sudden I was thinking to myself as I was, you know, really wrestling over how to preach this. Last week, he's telling this parable because of last week. Let's go back to last week for a minute. Who were the groups that rejected Jesus again? The religious leaders and his family. Now, Jesus has already told us, the religious leaders, done, right? But after Jesus' resurrection, we're told that there's a group of people waiting for Jesus to send the Spirit of God upon them. Here's how it's described in the book of Acts. Take a look at this. Go ahead, Chuck, skip ahead to that, please. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And one of those brothers was a guy named James who wrote a really powerful letter that starts, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say brother of Jesus. I don't know why no commentator points that out. Because it's very clear in chapter 3 that among the outsiders are his family at this point. And yet, even though they're not going to get any more special revelation at this point, there's still hope for them. There's still hope for them. And a matter of fact, more than that, they do turn around. Praise be to God. I like how one commentator summarized this, and I thought this was the best thing I read in everything. Let me read this quote to you. I think it's uh, uh, William Lane. He says, The citation of Isaiah 6 does not mean that those outside are permanently denied the possibility of belief. All it says 
is they're excluded from the opportunity from being further instructed in the secret of the kingdom. So long as unbelief continues. But if they repent, oh my goodness, the slightest turn towards God and he pours out his grace and his mercy and his truth. And it doesn't matter where you are this morning and where your heart is, the slightest turn to him, I'm telling you, he will pour out his shalom on you. But you've got to turn to him. You've got to admit that you've been all about you. All right, so with that said, let, let's go ahead and look at the, uh, what, how he explains the parable to them. So verse 13, then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? He's like, I've given you the secret of the kingdom. You, you should get it. <laughs> and that just tells me that's what I was saying earlier. Sometimes I can hear, but I need to really concentrate. I kind of, he's like saying, pay attention, you guys. Just, don't just lay on your laurels. Yeah, I've, been, I've just told you I've given you the secrets. You're on the inside, but don't rest on your laurels. You should get this. I've given you enough to get. You need to concentrate. Okay, then you will, un- how will you understand any parable? The parable of sower is like the base parable because it says if you're not going to have a heart that's going to listen to God, nothing's going to come through to you. It's the base parable. If you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand any of them. And then he explains it. He says, the farmer sows the word. All right, so the seed is the word of God. We already figured that out, right? Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and he takes away the word that was sown in them. Actually, Chuck, go ahead and show the, um, the little chart I put together so you can even follow along as I read it. Again, I'm not going to press the details here because I don't think that's right in interpreting a parable. I'm going to keep it on a high level here. So you got the path. It's hard soil. What kind of heart is it? It's a hard heart. And what kind of group? I would call this the careless people, right? Their hearts are hard. The word is placed upon them, but it doesn't mean anything to them. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Hard-hearted. You know anybody like this? They just scoff at, at, at the idea of a God even. Atheists who are just uh, anti-Christian and against the Word of God, all of that. These are, they could care less about spiritual things. Those are hard-hearted people. And boy, unless there's a major breakthrough, Satan just has a field day with them. And we can get hard-hearted, friends. I mean, some of us this morning, maybe we've become hard-hearted to the things of God. And we're, we're, we're involved in rabid sin that we're not confessing and, and repenting of. We see all the time pastors con- uh, committing terrible sins, and all of a sudden it comes out. It's like, how did that happen? They allow their heart to get hard. And you just Satan's going to have a field day with that person. Others, verse 16, are like the seed sown on the rocky places. They hear the word and at once receive it with joy. This is great. Oh, this is awesome. Actually, one, one translation said these are men of the moment, men of the moment. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The Greek word there, fall away, is scandalizo, where we get scandal from. Scandal, they fall away. I'm reminded when I was uh, in college, there was a guy with these shallow roots. I led a guy named Bob in my dorm, dorm to Christ. And I started following him up. But then his friends started making fun of him. And he, I mean, really gave him a hard time. I remember he came to me one time about it, and I said, listen, that's part of following Christ. And he was like, wow, if that's, and then he didn't say this to me, but it was obvious, if that's part of the deal, I'm out. 
And then my senior year, every Tuesday night, I'd go around and knock on doors in my dorm. That was kind of my thing. And nobody was ever home my senior year. And I found out later, Bob had gone around at the beginning of the year and told everyone, be out of the dorm on Tuesday nights because Andre goes around and talks to people about Jesus. So the one who had been for me actually ended up being against me. Why? Because of shallow roots. He was curious about the God. He liked the idea of God has a great plan for your life. Okay, I'll say yes to that. But then when he found out that suffering was part of it, no, thank you. All right, then we got thorny. Verse 18, still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word, so they, they, they hear it audibly. Verse 19, but then three things, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, you think wealth is going to solve everything, and the desires, really strong word there, epithumia, deep, strong, lusting, almost deep wantings for other things. Besides God himself, come in and choke the word and making it unfruitful. Choking. These are people with cluttered lives. They're conflicted between the things of God and the things of the world. One foot in and one foot over here. Not quite all in what Leroy was describing, the half thing. And many of us, if we're not living here, we, we spend some seasons in this place. Come on. Come on, can I get a witness on that one? You know it's true. Whether it's wealth or worries or desire or lust, we hang out here at times. And there's no fruit in this place. And all we're trying to do is survive, just getting by. God wants so much more for us than to just get by. My goodness. But it's because we're conflicted. We're in this conflicted place, very focused on ourselves, self-pity, Focused on ourselves. When again, when I was in college, I was thinking of my friend Brad. I, when I came to Christ, a, a week before I came to Christ, Garth, the, the navigator staff guy on campus, he led another guy to Christ named Brad. And Brad and I came to Christ like within a week of each other, as I said. And he started discipling us. Brad had much more leadership potential than I did. I, even I saw it. Brad was a really gifted guy. And, and I could tell Garth was putting more effort into him. And I was a little envious and jealous, to be honest with you. But I also saw that it made sense. It was clearly this guy was like an amazing leader. So anyways, we, he started discipling us, and we started growing. And, uh, but then Garth said, you know, you guys are still pretty young in your faith. The summer's coming up, and there's this training program, and it really solidifies you, your faith, and I really think you guys should to contemplate going. But that meant not going home and making money for tuition, Right? So that meant trusting God for money, which was scary. And I was like, oh, man, it's always been an area of weakness for me. But I prayed about it, thought about it. And honestly, there was probably some wanting to please Garth in it. I'll be honest with you. It wasn't all pure motive. But I've decided to say yes. A little scared about the money, but I said yes. Well, Brad ended up saying no. So I went to the program. He didn't. When September rolled around, Brad was avoiding us like crazy. He had gone back home, gotten his well-paying job, and he reconnected with his old girlfriend. And that's pretty much all it took. And the rest of college, at least, Brad never, never turned back to the Lord. I don't know what happened since. I hope he did. Now, I'm not saying because I went to a training program, you know, God bless that. But my point is what's, what's going on there is Brad's heart was conflicted. 
And God was calling him to a step of faith. And he, when he said no to that step of faith, he was choosing the wrong way. And I think there's some people here this morning in the same place. You are conflicted. God wants you to be all in. Are you hearing him? Can you hear him now? And finally, there's the good soil, right? Verse 20. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, and they accept it, they receive it. The word there is like hospitality, entertaining a guest in your home. They entertain it. They, they love it. And they produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown, as I said earlier, abundant fruit. It's either no fruit or tons of fruit. <laughs> There's no in-between. And when we're talking fruit, we're not just talking uh, doing all kinds of things. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the character of Christ in your heart, in your mind, being kind to others. Gentle, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, all of those things. Not just doing great things, although that's part of it. It's all of that. It's all for those who receive the Word. And that's the question this morning. Are we receiving it? Now, at the end of Luke's gospel, uh, when he tells the parable of the sower, he adds on what Leroy read to us in the message version in Mark. Here's what Luke actually says. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. I think, Leroy, you said the message said open heart. Who hear the word, retain it, and by preserving, by persevering, produce a crop. What's the state of our hearts, guys? What's the state of our hearts? It's all about our hearts. Not her heart, his heart, what's the church doing or not doing. It's our hearts. Where are we this morning? That's what the 40 days is all about. Where's our heart? Am I hearing? Am I listening? So my third point this morning is that reception of the message depends on the state of one's heart. That's the point of the whole parable. It's the basis of all the parables. Your heart, where's your heart? And all of us have to be really, really allowing God, taking the time to allow him to examine each one of our hearts. I don't care if you're an elder, a pastor, a deacon, a life group leader, or a brand new person who just showed here up there today. It doesn't matter. Every single person's heart needs to remain soft before the Lord. What does that look like? I really like the challenge that, I, that the Life Application Bible pointed out. Let, let me just read this from the Life Application Bible. I thought this was good. The hearing Jesus wants from us is not the kind we use to listen to background radio music. You know, where you're half in and half out, right? No, no, no. It's when someone starts to read or when someone recounts a long story you've already heard. And what do you do? You tune out. No. And I think many of us tune out. Why? We've heard the parable of the sower 500 million times. We tune out. Or Andre's just preaching. I'm just listening for the stuff that I don't agree with. <laughs> Guys, I am dead serious. That is a major problem in the church. It's a major problem in the church. Your job isn't to be a critic. Your job is to be a humble worshiper in front of Almighty God. Now, I'm not saying you can't challenge me. You certainly can. Paul Tortland pointed out I did a wrong uh, reference last week. Thank you, Paul. I want to be challenged. I'm not saying. That's not my point. 
Your job is not to listen. Do I like what Andre's saying? Is it fitting what I want Wintonberry to be? Your job is God Almighty examine my heart. And it might be the thing you've heard a hundred times, but today with an open heart, it finally bears fruit. To hear Jesus' words is to believe them. He says, I love you. Do you believe that? To use them immediately in decisions and attitudes. To base your life on his words. Our recreation and work, our family plans and money matters, schooling and and voting, praying and singing. To hear Jesus' words is to make Jesus our true Lord. What is Jesus saying to you? So let's go there. What is he saying to you? I came up with a couple diagnostic questions to do a little heart check. And I'm going to give us a minute here of just quiet. Look at these questions, and I want you to just go ahead, Chuck. How would you feel if you lost all your material possessions or money? How much would it affect you if you lost? Think about that. Those of us who struggle with material stuff or our jobs. Maybe some of you need to think about, if I were to track my thinking for the last hour or the last day, what's been the dominant thing that my heart's been focused on? Maybe another question is what I just said. Do you listen to learn? Or like the Pharisees, do you listen to judge? When, forget me, when anyone is speaking, are you listening to judge or are you listening to learn? What kind of heart posture do you have in listening? Even when you're talking to somebody. And then you may remember this, don't lose the dove. The Spirit of God lit on Jesus when he was baptized and doves are, are very skittish. The only way they stay is if the person is totally at peace. What causes you to lose your shalom? Is it anxiety, worry? Is there any of that? Or are you in sync with the Spirit at rest in Him? Is the the Spirit of God resting easily on you? Or are you all hopped up about stuff? Father, over the next minute, would you please speak to each one of us? Maybe one of these questions or maybe another. Would you please examine our hearts before we close our service? Lord, we obviously could take days to have you examine our hearts. I I hope that something has started here for some this morning. Lord, you've shown me that I'm a terrible listener, Lord. I don't listen to learn. I'm listening to see if this person likes me or not. Forgive me, Father. Father, I pray whatever it is, that keeps our hearts hard towards others or thorny. Remove it, Lord, because we want to bear fruit that glorifies you. Do that in our hearts individually and as a church corporately, Lord. More of you, less of us. Thank you, Lord. I'd like you to stand with me just to seal this time. I preached on this passage a few years back, and I closed it by singing the bridge of the song, The Stand. Leroy had no idea. 
And when I saw him choose to stand this morning, I knew that that was from the Spirit of God. Listen, guys, this is what God wants us to be singing as a church and individually. I don't know about you, but nothing is going to keep these arms down. I have no shame that Jesus says, I am surrendered. I don't need a gun to put my arms up. I don't need a gun. What does it take to get your arms up? Does he have your attention? Scripture says, I want men everywhere to raise holy hands, surrendered to God. Well, I'm putting my arms up. You can do what you want. So I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all. I am his, yours. One more time, one more time. Come on, church. So I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all. I am his, yours. Lord, may that be true of us. Lord, may we be a surrendered people willing to lay down anything, not caring what anyone thinks of us, willing to go and follow wherever you lead us. Work with us, Lord. Forgive us. We repent. We repent of our unbelief. We repent of it, Father. We turn to you. Change our hearts, Lord. We pray all this by faith in the God of grace who can do open-heart surgery in a moment's notice. Clear up the blockages, Lord. Help us to hear you clearly, individually and as a church. And all God's people said, amen. If you need prayer, Nancy Morganweg would love to pray with you. I'll pray with you. Walk with the Lord. Keep pursuing him.